0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Red Sox Beat Podcast presented by CLNS Media. That's your online audio and video provider for Major League Baseball. I'm the host of the show, Chris Cotillo from MassLive.com. Episode 239, we have one of our most frequent guests on the show, Chris Smith, my colleague at MassLive, here to join us to talk about a very busy uh, week or 10 days in uh, Red Sox history. Chris, how are you?
1: Good. How are you doing?
0: Good. It's a uh, Saturday afternoon, November 2nd. When we're recording this, so as a recording, I'm sure just because this is what happens, JD Martinez will decide on his opt-out um right as soon as we get off this call. I had something similar last week. I recorded a whole podcast talking about how the Red Sox were likely to go with internal options for their general manager or their new chief baseball officer, and it turns out later that night, word started leaking that Heim Bloom would be the team's pick. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I think. You know, Just to kind of explain that, they did such an unbelievable job of keeping it quiet that uh, people in the game, people who were just guessing and reporting, uh, fans, reporters, agents, general managers, executives, even people that had worked with Bloom in Tampa, um, had no idea what was going on. So the Red Sox kept it uh, very, very well under wraps until it started leaking out last week when it was a done deal. And then Bloom was introduced as the new chief baseball officer of the Red Sox on Monday. And Chris and I were both there. For the press conference, Chris, I know you liked the hire. I know you talked about him as a candidate uh, even before he was hired. What are your uh, thoughts on on the process and then the decision to go with Haim?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a uh, quiet process, and but I think that you know, and as you said, everybody was just guessing on who could be, you know, interviewed and who who was a potential candidate. But I think everybody that wrote out a list uh, at the beginning of the process had you know, bloom on their list. Uh, I'm not sure. And so like, you know, I mean, he was, you know, we, we, I had written earlier that week about potential candidates still in the mix uh, after Friedman and some of these other guys had, had fell off the board and bloom was still a name, you know, that was there, even though we had no idea whether he was, you know, (laughs) the really a candidate, but yeah. Chris
0: Chris passed himself on the back for this. He also had Brandon Taubman on the list. So,
1: (laughs) Well, that was pre um, yeah, you before know, the, the incident. To give
0: him credit. But.
1: So, you know, I mean, and very obviously, Boom is, is you know, a very um, young and intelligent. I mean, he graduated from Yale with a classics in Latin degree. And um, mm-hmm. but, you know, more importantly, he's been around, a, a you know, a small market team for, you know, since 2005 as an intern. And he's learned from the best. I mean, he's learned from Andrew Friedman. Uh, he's learned, you know, Ma- Matthew Silverman, I mean, has done it, you know, is, is, is a great baseball guy. You know, as much as you can criticize the Rays organization and, you know, their stadium and all that, uh, from a baseball perspective, they do things right. I mean, this yep. is, you know, Friedman you know, I had them in four or five uh postseasons, uh from like two thousand and eight to two thousand and twelve. And, you know, in and um and after he left, uh Silverman and Bloom, you know, kept the Meander. thing going. Yeah, they kept the thing going. And um, you know, and obviously there there was a, you know, he he had some good years of the past and you know, he, mm-hmm. he's a guy that is going to use some small market principles, but the import you know the important thing to watch is, is that, you know, now he has obviously a bigger, you know, a bigger checkbook, and that's the difficult, you know, fine line. I think that in a way, you know, both, you know, you look at a small market GM and they don't have the resources, but they also don't have the ability or aren't in a way forced to, you know, sign that long-term deal, which we've obviously seen has not yeah. worked so many times. So, so. You know, and Bloom's mistakes in the past have been short-term deal mistakes, uh, you know, things that aren't going to hamstring the Tampa Bay Rays long-term. His, you know, now that he has a bigger checkbook, he's going to, you know, be expected to make deals that, you know, and, and we've seen it with Theo Epstein. We've seen it with, you know, Andrew Friedman, even with the Dodgers. I mean, they every big market GM makes mistakes uh, with yep. big deals. And so this is going to be a new dimension. And so even though everybody says, oh, it's, it's way harder to be a small market GM, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's just as hard to be a big market GM. Because, you know, you have to look, you have to work with some small market principles, but you're expected to be a big player. And that whole, whole, uh, puts a whole new dimension on the job.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously I don't think the Red Sox are going to be in on the biggest free agents this year, even though we did see they are the third most likely team. To sign Steven Strasburg, though, the Nationals are wildly uh, big favorites. I'm sure by the time this drops, Strasburg will have made his decision either to opt in or opt out. Um, obviously, um, that that's one that baseball's waiting on at this point. But I think Bloom this year is more about, you know, working with the roster he has uh, and trying to supplement it and also trim payroll, whether that is by having J.D. Martinez opt out and save the Red Sox over 20 million against the cap um, of the CBT or trading Mookie Betts, or maybe trading one of the starters. We're starting to see rumors about potential David Price trade, or Nathan Evaldi, or Chris Sale starting to trickle out. So we'll get to all that. I think, you know, with Heim Bloom, people think it was a really good hire overall. Uh, I talked to Willie Adamas with the Rays last night. He was appearing at the Pedro Martinez Foundation Gala in Boston, and he, you know, had was raving about him, and kind of sincerely raving about he's such a smart guy. He was always so accountable. We really liked him. And um, seemed like you know he actually did have a good relationship and a close relationship with the players in Tampa. Something he'll probably want to uh, bring here to Boston. I thought the press conference the other day it was a marathon event. I uh, believe that he, along with Sam Kennedy, the president of the team, and two owners, Tom Warner and John Henry, were up there on on at the head table for 47 minutes, which. It's a lot of transcription, a lot of quotes, and a lot of use of the word collaboration. I think that was the most um, used word, as I think everybody talked about and everybody wrote. My take on it was, I think, the most interesting thing said during that whole press conference was John Henry saying, you know, when we looked at this, we didn't want an autocrat. We didn't want a one-man show. He said he didn't want to go into the difference, differences between Dave Dombrowski and Heim Bloom and then follow that up with, in Heim, we didn't want an autocrat. And we didn't want a one-man show, which was... Basically, you know, not too veiled of a shot at the way Dombrowski did things. And look, John Henry said it. We've all said it. And I've been called by people with the Red Sox a Dombrowski apologist. Um, And I think, you know, he obviously won won a World Series. He's a Hall of Fame executive. But um, the Red Sox wanted to build build a more collaborative, cohesive structure. They kind of wanted to do that in all facets, facets of the organization. They wanted to get things working together, working more smoothly. And Bloom, and the way he's come in, and I thought another really telling piece to this was that when asked about specifics of the roster, whether that be J.D. Martinez or Mookie Betts or the pitching or the payroll or what he wanted to do, or, we, or even my question that I asked about if he was going to bring the opener to Boston, it was, I just got here. I don't know anything yet. Let me really get to know these people, get to know the organization, get to know what we have, and basically needs to take a crash course over the next couple of weeks before he, he begins making his moves. And I really... You know, as as boring as it is for us sitting there in the press conference trying to get good quotes and trying to get good stories and trying to get all the answers, I thought it was really impressive that he dis- decided to sit back and say, look, I don't know, and I don't want to comment on something that I don't know anything about.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you talk about collaboration, and I'm going to go back to a 2000 and, I don't know, it was 2003, 2004 article <laughs> in the Boston Globe by Christopher Snow, uh, Christopher Snow who was a Syracuse grad, who I think is now a hockey exec in, I don't know, somewhere like Edmonton or something like that.
0: Okay. Um,
1: he wrote about Theo Epstein's, you know, brain trust and how there was never, there was, th- there was five guys in it. And I can't think of, I'm sure Jed Horry was one, maybe Burns. I, I, I can't, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so he, he wrote about this and how there was no, yes, there was no yes men, you know, he wanted everybody to challenge him. And that's how he got the most productive, you know, um, that's how his front office was the most productive. And I think that when we look at it, and obviously at the end of the day, Epstein was the GM. He made the final calls. Now, obviously, Larry Lucchino interfered a little bit. But at the end of the day, he, yes. But at the end of the day, he was the head of baseball operations and those, you know, five or so guys that were, you know, there you know core guys and building those teams that were not yes um that were not yes men they were challenging him and i think that's the atmosphere that they want to create in boston you know again is you know bloom being on the the head of that you know four or five guys and everybody giving their own ideas and but at the end of the day i still think you know it's it's his call and you know um they talk about you know collaborative approach but you know at the end of the day if he doesn't like you know certain things I mean he makes the call and he's the head guy and so um you know I think it's going to be interesting um he does he was very impressive in the way that he talked about Brian O'Halloran and you know and some of these other guys that that have been there it you know made them you know, I mean, it's got to be tough for him coming in as a 36-year-old. And Brian O'Halloran, I mean, he, he's he's older now. He's, like, he's I think, in his late 40s, maybe. And uh, even though he doesn't look like it, he looks like he's mm-hmm. in his mid-30s. And, um, you know, it, it can't be an easy situation as a 36-year-old to come in and be everybody's boss of guys that have been there since, you know, the beginning of the Epstein era. I mean, even, yep. you, know, you know, Halloran was there at the beginning of the Epstein era. You know, uh, Romero was was there since two thousand five. It can't be that. It it has to. You know, and I think that that's an important thing: collaboration, to make his job easier. You know, to get to get everybody to you know work with him. I think it's important instead of everybody looking at him as the new boss and you know this outsider that's coming in and you know is going to be you know put his head down and not listen to everybody. So I think it was important for. I think it was as important for Bloom as it was for John Henry to, to get that message of collaboration, you know, put forward so that, you know, he can be, he can have allies of people instead of be the, you know, the 36 year old, you know, Yale grad that comes in and just takes over.
0: Yeah. No. And I think also, I think they're, they're looking at trying to get, get more of a structure like they had under Theo. If they couldn't get Theo, get someone who can, you know, be like him, be creative, smart, and also collaborate. And they, you know, they they needed that creative mind at a time where the organization in the last few years, you know, one of Dave Dombrowski's flaws, as we've talked about time and time again, maybe not the biggest on creativity, more of a, you know, comes in, signs a lot of guys, spends a lot of money, delivers you a championship, does his job, but when well, it's time for a rebuild, uh, it's time for someone else. And um, we've seen immediately after that, Dave Dombrowski was fired, Frank Wren was let go by the organization. A little surprised that Tony LaRussa stood by, but LaRussa and Wren were his. Uh, big advisors you know two older guys in the front office um and, and it seemed like some other people might have felt like they were cut out at times under uh, the old regime the first i guess go ahead
1: well yeah i think it's interesting because we always looked at um dombrowski as a delegator of you know jobs like you know <laughs> mm-hmm. uh Drellick had that article about how he didn't have anything to do with the Otani stuff. And I think that when you look at it, he was a delegator of jobs. When, when you look at the uh, Andrew Kashner press conference uh, and he admits at the end, he has no idea who the two prospects are, they're trading for him. However, when it came to big decisions, um, Dombrowski, I think in that way, he was, he was the guy that, you know, had all the autonomy And that if he wanted um, to re-sign Evaldi, if he wanted to re-sign Pierce, if he wanted to re-sign, you know, anybody else um, or or give that extension to Cursale, it was his thing. He wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to ask the opinions of everybody else or that was that was like, you know, that was his autonomy. So. While he was a delegator big time of jobs, they weren't the bi- you know the biggest jobs they were yep. you know other things within the organization that you know that and he didn't really pay attention to those other things. but when it came to big free agents, big trades, that was his autonomy,
0: yeah, and I think that's that's interesting I think you know it was kind of that separation um instead of the cohesiveness that kind of you know shown through in uh a lot of different parts of the organization you know when we you know, there's trades that people have said that he did alone, you know, and he wanted to do and he negotiated by himself and the other people didn't really have any idea in the organization what was going on. And then there were, were trades where you know, maybe he identified something and then let somebody else do all the work. You know, I think it was, as you said, the Andrew Kastner press conference and, and I don't fault Dombrowski because this wasn't an earth shattering move and I might have been working on other things. But he said during that press conference, I want to thank Brian O'Halloran for dealing with the money. And the negotiations, the financial structure, what we have to pay, the cash changing hands. And I want to thank Eddie Romero for uh, trading the prospects and being involved in the compensation going to the Orioles. And I was trying to figure out what part of the trade Dombrowski could have possibly done, other than just say, hey, we want Andrew Casner, you guys go figure it out. So it seemed like, you know, there was that okay, I'm going to hand it off. You can, you guys can handle it. And he had trust in those guys in the organization, but there wasn't that, you know, collaboration, cohesiveness, all those buzzwords we heard the other day. Another place where this is coming into play for the Red Sox, this idea of developing, you know, a more uniform unilateral organization is in the way the team is forming their pitching structure. When they reassigned Daniel Evangie, the pitching coach, made him a pro scout and, changed Brian Bannister, formerly the assistant pitching coach, they changed his role. Um, th- the goal, and, and I reported this at the time, was to make a more cohesive structure from top to bottom in the organization. Uh, at one point in Tampa or St. Pete at the end of the year, um, Alex Gore was talking about, you know before one of the games, and his scrum talked about how he wanted a more cohesive type of deal from top to bottom in the minors, a more Organized pitching philosophy. Um, just because at times the Red Sox felt like you know the guys who were coming up uh, were not doing the same types of things that maybe you know the guys that were on the major league roster were doing. You know whether that be of aldi uh, Porcello, their philosophies. You know and successful organizations now. You know teams pitch a certain way, and the Red Sox are supposed to have that, but you know guys haven't been following that. There were some concerns with conditioning on some guys that were on the team some guys on the pitching staff um that they're talking about being on those guys you know some of the guys who are 4a types now a couple guys that chris smith likes to talk about and write about a lot but um, might get a chance with a lot of bullpen spots open you know there's some wanting those guys to really buy into the program and acora talked about that in saint pete kind of when we were wrapping up after they were eliminated um so, to do that, you know, they decided that they were going to work from the bottom to the top. And they decided, and I thought this was really telling, not to hire someone from outside the organization for their pitching coach and assistant co- pitching coach, but to hire two guys who had plenty of experience in the minor leagues. Uh, the new pitching coach is Dave Bush, who is the a director of pitching performance in the minors last year and worked at a bunch of the affiliates throughout the season, uh, a guy who kind of had an analytical mind and, and was really focused on. Um, he had a great knowledge of the system from top to bottom, majors and minors. He was a candidate from the get-go. Another candidate from the get-go is uh, going to be on the, on the staff. Uh, Kevin Walker is the assistant pitching coach. He will be referred to as only walk by Alex Gore and everybody from now on. He's a guy who's worked at a bunch of different levels of the system uh, in Portland and Lowell and Greenville and been there for, for a long time. I didn't even realize that before reading it this week, the last couple of years as Pawtucket's pitching coach and has a good grasp on, you know, all the guys coming up. So it's clear the Red Sox wanted a couple of guys on the staff who are going to be comfortable with the young pitchers coming up. You know, obviously there's a bunch of guys who have been in the majors for a while, whether that be Sale Price, Evaldi, Erod. Um, but in the bullpen Barnes and those guys, but, you know, with guys like Darwin and Josh Taylor and Lakens and Schwarren and, and uh, Pointer and those types of guys taking on increased roles, it's clear that they wanted guys who uh, know what makes them successful in the minor leagues and wanted to make a more cohesive uh, way of doing things throughout the organization.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, every article I think I've written on a minor league pitcher in the last, you know, so many years is, he's been, you know, he's mentioned Kevin Walker on his own. And so I think that, um, you know, he's an important guy to have in the mix as the assistant. But I think that another aspect that, you know, is important is Brian Bannister putting his, you know, full, all his, you know, both his hands and getting, you know, into it with the, the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've obviously struggled, um, you know, developing starting pitching talent, you know, forever. I mean, it's, you know, since John Lester and, and Clay Buckles, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can maybe put Felix debrant in that mix. He had a couple of good years with the Red Sox. But other than that, I mean, they really have a If you're pitching in
0: Korea talent. before age 30, you're not a successful major league <laughs> pitcher. But he did
1: do a hell of a job in the 2013 World Series, right? Yep. So... So anyway, yeah, but what I'm saying is is that, um, you know, Bannister was the type that, you know, he was the assistant pitching coach, but during the games, I mean, he was, he was in the clubhouse watching, you know, five TVs of the, you know, the, the minor league games going on and examining pitch. And, you know, I think he told me at one point, I don't know exactly what percentage, but I know that it was more percent of his day was spent in the minor leagues examining video of the minor leaguers and, you know, you know, working on what they can do better than the actual major league team. That's really what he, you know, he loves to do. He is, um, resisted becoming a stay in that
0: role and then staying home in California.
1: He's resisted, um, you know, becoming a pitching coach in the major leagues for that reason, because he enjoys that. And so I think that that is going to be a, you know, a helpful thing. And obviously, you know, Bloom has it comes from the um, you know the system where it has developed the most starting pitching of any of any organization mm-hmm. in the past so many years, and so I'm sure he'll have good opinions on how to make the you know the minor league better and that cohesiveness going up to the top. But you know, in, when it comes down to it, you, you have the talent; you just have to develop the talent, and the Red Sox haven't been able to do that.
0: Yeah, and obviously a few arms, you know, whether it be Mata or Jay Groom or even unlocking even more potential out of Hernandez and Taylor and a bunch of these guys that we saw in the majors this year will be a huge task for Bloom, for Dave Bush, for, for Walker, for all these guys that are now you know going to be in, in big roles with the Red Sox. Uh, the Red Sox offseason has officially started. We saw a bunch of guys hit free agency the other day. Porcello, Mitch Moreland, Brock Holt, Andrew Kaschner, uh, Shasin, Steve Pierce, who looks likely to retire, Um, and we have the biggest name who could hit free agency is still deciding as of this recording on Saturday afternoon. He has until Monday, I believe Monday afternoon. I'm not sure exactly what time it is. Yeah, I
1: think it's at 5 p.m.
0: 5 p.m. is what I thought it was, yeah. Um, And that is J.D. Martinez deciding if he will opt out of his contract. Uh, It's simple, basically. Uh, J.D. Martinez can decide, I want to come back to the Red Sox. He will be on the roster for one year in 23 and 23. 0.75 0. 0.75 million for next year. He will then have another opt out at the end of next year. If he wants to take it or he could hit free agency, give up the three years and 62 and a half remaining on his contract, hit free agency. The Red Sox pay him a buyout. He walks the Red Sox save, you know, $20 million against the cap um, or against the CBT basically is the cap. I don't know why I feel like I shouldn't say that it is the cap effectively. Um, and, um, so that's a huge decision. I think everybody knows by now that what J.D. Martinez does might determine what the Red Sox do with Mookie Betts. I think there's a lot of people that think the Red Sox would celebrate if J.D. opted out. I don't tend to be um, among those people. And, and yesterday, talking to David Ortiz at the Pedro Gala, uh, which I mentioned before, the he had a very interesting uh, quote uh, that I will pull up about J.D. Martinez. And kind of, you know, as David Ortiz still has say, in the organization, he's still, you know, an advisor, obviously, now that his recovery is complete. He's looking forward to getting back to, to doing that some more and being around Fenway. Um, on J.D., he said they'll probably offer him a couple years on top of the one he has and keep on rolling, hopefully. We need J.D. We need him. He's like the base of the lineup. He helps out all the guys. He's good. He's good for the ball club and good for everything. Hopefully, he'll retire in this organization just like I did. So David Ortiz, the big J.D. Martinez fan, also talked about how he wants Mookie Betts back. You know, I think this perception that the Red Sox would celebrate if, if J.D. Um, opted out is, is not necessarily true. You know, I think that there's something to be said for, even if he does opt in, trading one of those guys, restocking the farm system and cutting payroll. You know, and I still think that the, the best move for the organization wouldn't be, oh, great, J.D. opted out, so we lose him and we keep Mookie and get no compensation other than a draft pick back for JD. I think it's JD comes back, you have that bat in your lineup, and you trade Mookie for four prospects and get a huge deal for a team that wants a year of his services. I think that that still is, you know, the best way the organization can go. Uh, JD Martinez has, has been an awesome fit. He's been one of the most, you know, as as much as we criticize, you know, all these people and all these GMs for all the bad signings dating back to matt clement and even you know people are criticizing the sale extension and all that stuff i think the jd martinez signing whether he opts in whether he opts out whatever was was a really really good one two-time all-star guy really in the thick of the mvp voting in 2018 won a title um and doesn't really you know i know he's aging but he seems like the kind of guy who's so dedicated to his process that um doesn't really show any signs of slowing down i think the red sox would be very lucky to have him opt in personally
1: yeah, I think that that's uh, what they should be hoping for. Um, but you look at like a, a Joel Sherman wrote in the New York Post a few days back. It was an interesting thing. He said that if if JD opts out, would the Red Sox, you know, try to resign him? And his point was is that you look at Bloom and Bloom might not want inflexibility at the DH position. He might want, you know, to have a guy that can also play the outfield at a high level, uh, that, that he can rotate DHS because that's what he did, at you know, in Tampa. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that, um, you know, we saw uh, that, that that's the way that Bloom's going to think. You know, I mean, we saw, um, w- well, first of all, Bloom said in his press conference, he said, just because I did things a certain way with the Rays, that doesn't make it, you know, proof, and what I'm going to do with the Red Sox, you know, I could take different approaches to, to the ways I handle things. Yep. And, you know, I think we, we, we have to look back at 2017 and that was a, a, not a good year for the Red Sox offense. Um, they were middle of the pack in MLB in a lot of categories and it was the year after David Ortiz retired and they were trying to stay below the CBT that year. And they did. And they didn't go out and sign a DH to replace him. And they had a rotating DH. Um, I mean, mostly Hanley was the guy, but the goal at the beginning of the year was to have a rotating DH. And if you look at it, I think there was 30 or 40 starts that Chris Young made at DH that year. And it was a horrendous year for Chris Young and a horrendous year for the Boston Red Sox offense, considering what they have been, you know, since Epstein, <laughs> since Epstein's years with the Red Sox. I mean, they've, you know, always been a top power, you know, or a top offensive, Mm -hmm. you know, team in in Major League Baseball. So I think that you and then the next year they get J.D. Martinez, they win the World Series. So I would not rule out if if he does not, uh, if he opts out and you have to look at it from J.D. Martinez's perspective, too. Yeah, I mean the 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 contract's front loaded, so he's going to make you know the same amount or pretty much the same amount that he made this year that he had in the previous two years, and that's good for him. And then it drops next year, so why not opt out next year instead of this year? Yeah. Well, I mean he's also a year older, and next year, and he could have more back issues that that teams are wary about. So it might be better in his case to opt out a year you know, before right now than a year, you know, a year later. However, I don't see that the, the back issues, you know, haven't been a problem though. I mean, they have kept him uh, out some games, but it hasn't been a problem in his production. I mean, he's, he was basically the same player this year as he was last year. I mean, a little regression, but last year was just a special year for him. And so, uh, you know, you look at him and if he does, if he does opt out the Red Sox, I feel they need to go out and, you know, sign him and then, you know, potentially trade bets that that, you know, instead of just saying, okay, he's gone, we're committing to bets. I think they need to, you know, still explore that avenue where they re-sign, you know, Martinez and trade bets.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. You know, just because I think the value you can get on the trade market for Mookie is obviously a lot more than you can get for JD, uh, even though JD might come with technically some more control uh, minus the opt-out. So that will be the big storyline in Boston for the next two days, um, at least when it comes to the Red Sox, JD Martinez and his opt-out decision. From there, you know, once that is set in motion, you know, there's two different paths the Red Sox offseason could go down, um, really, um, and, and that will become clear a lot more clear once he makes that call so i'm sure that'll be everything we talk about on next week's edition of the pod that has been today's thank you chris smith for joining us and thank you guys for listening